We also take our security very seriously, as you can see outside. We take that very seriously here. So you guys are safe this morning. It's actually kind of funny. We were out there, and we, I, I, they weren't here when I got here. I and mean, I walked outside, and I was like, there's a tank outside of the school. So it was kind of, uh, kind of funny. Uh, yeah, my name's Jeremy. Welcome to Legacy Church. Um, we've been going through a series in James, and we're finishing up today. We're, so we're going to be in James 5, 19, and 20. And um, I'm really excited about being on this side of town. Once it's closer to my house, which is always nice, you know, makes it easier and all that. And we're in a really neat zip code with a lot of diversity. So it, it's really a, a place where we've already got a ministry here with, um, with our laundromat. So... It just kind of works out well for us. I'm really excited about being here. And it feels so much better in here than it does in a gym. You know, the gym was so hot, and I sweat a lot anyway. So like in the gym, it just amplifies times 10. So it feels really good in here. So I was reading an article this week, um, maybe about a two week, maybe a week or two ago. And I didn't think about this at the time, but then I started looking at the article, and I thought it was a pretty interesting article. He called it, uh, the title of his article was An Atheistic Church. And I kind of thought that was interesting. And as I was going over my sermon uh, this week, just kind of looking over the text and everything, I thought it was pretty timely that I read the article when I did. And I started looking at it, and I was like, there's a, there's a lot of similarities with, with what we're talking about this morning. Let me just read you. It's a, it's a little long. Stick with me. It's, it's really interesting. And um, let me read some uh, parts of it to you. So it says they meet once a month. Uh, they meet in North London. And they're looking for anybody searching for a sense of community to meet and turn good intentions into action. So they're looking for community. And it says, in all things considered, it's an atheistic church, the church for atheists. So the doors open, the church fills up. By the time the service has started, there's standing room only. This is the second time it met. There've been 200 people in the church. It was meant to hold about 150. So he goes on and he says, to be honest, I was taken aback by how many people showed up. Church plan. I thought this was funny. Church planners dream of a second ever service this full. And here I was in the midst of atheists, humanists, and agnostics who were all anticipating something new, something fresh, something exciting for their movement. And he goes on to say, It was given by a wonderfully articulate and intelligent guest speaker. He was a researcher at the University of Cambridge, particle physicist. He delivered a talk, which he said, I believe, ironically pointed to the very God of creation and the church he was disavowing. He said his talk was entitled, It's a Wonder That We're All Here. And he, keep, and, and he says, in keeping with the theme of wonder, it was centered around the seeming impossibility of all matter just even existing. And he, says, and he said to them, he said, why are we all here? Essentially, um, why are we all here to wonder why we're all here in the first place? And he goes on, to, uh, he goes on in the article... And he says, throughout the service, I began to notice a consistent theme with almost everyone we spoke with, overheard or witnessed in the service. He said, everyone missed music and community of their childhood, and they wanted to bring it back into their lives. He goes on to say, I, I feel comfortable saying that many of the atheists in attendance were there precisely because they missed community and songs of church. That is such an oxymoron, an atheistic church. That just, just, just doesn't make sense to me. He goes on to say, um, people missed the fellowship and worship they left behind in their childhood churches, but have since yearned for a return to them. The more I came to realize that point, the more obvious it became. All of these people made in God's image are simply trying to fill the void of their design and purpose without actually knowing how. 
Every human is created in the image of the triune God and designed to worship. That doesn't go away because you don't believe in him. Deep down in every human being, we yearn to be in community and fellowship, just like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have enjoyed for eternity. Deep down in every human being, we are compelled to worship because it is what we've created to do. Just because you're an atheist doesn't mean that all goes away, and today only drove that point home more for me. It doesn't matter if you don't believe in God. Every human being still desires community and wants to worship. Where we find our community and what we worship, this is the key. This is, if you take nothing else from this, listen to this. Where we find our community and what we worship, however, is what will eventually define our joys, lives, and destinies. Everyone at church that morning seemed to believe that by adding community once a month and singing some random songs, they were filling that nagging void in their life. The more I thought about this, the more I wanted to stand on my chair and yell, you're missing the point. It's not enough. But perhaps the unusually large amount of cameras and journalists stopped me in my tracks. I didn't want to be that guy. It doesn't matter how many songs you sing or how many people you hang out with. If it's not centered around Jesus, the true reason the church exists in the first place, it's never going to be enough. So as we look at our text this morning... The, here's the point with, with that story. They're, they're, they were lacking something. We, why is it such an ironic, strange statement to say atheistic church? Because they're not gathering around anything. They're not holding each other. They're not in each other's lives in a way that they're propelling themselves towards something. It's basically just them coming together to say nothing exists and we're just going to acknowledge it. Or, or everything exists, came from nothing, we're just going to acknowledge it. There's really no purpose behind what they're doing. So there's no level of accountability between each other. There's no one calling anybody to faith. There's no, you just show up and just, I guess, celebrate the fact that we're just a bunch of random matter. So what did they lack? What makes it such an oxymoron? They lack Jesus. They lack the truth. What they're doing is trying, they're trying to fill a void in their lives with something that, that is not ultimately going to fill them. I mean, we can show up and we can do this, you know, every, every week, every other week. But if we don't have Jesus, what's the point? What's interesting about this story is it doesn't look a whole lot different from a lot of our churches in America. What's scary about this is we think we show up and we have a ticket to heaven. We think we show up. And no one can speak into my life. No one can say this to me. No one can say that to me. There's nothing I'm held accountable to. I mean, you can go down the road in Knoxville to any church you want, and you're going to find plenty of churches that essentially just meet together and never, ever get in each other's lives. So church is about Jesus. Everything's about Jesus. The whole reason we exist is to glorify God and to tell people about him. That's the reason the church exists with that in mind, turn to James five nineteen and 20 with me. We've been going through James for a while now, and, and James is, um, I, I read one person a few months back when we started in James. He said James is kind of like the Proverbs of the, of the New Testament. If you've ever read through Proverbs, you can kind of see a little bit of similarities. James is really... James is really concerned about the lives of the people that he's writing to. He's writing to Jewish believers who basically kind of did, been dispersed from their home. And so he's really concerned with them living out their life. Faith, ooh, that was weird. Faith with uh, James is not just something you believe, but it's something you also live out. If you have a true faith, you're going to live that faith out. And as we get to the very end, it's, it's kind of a strange way to end the letter. This is how James ends his letter. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth 
And someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's a really weird way to end a letter to me. You know, Paul ends letters, hug this man, give this man a holy kiss, do this. James is just point blank ends the letter right here. You know, if I was going to end a letter, I'd be like, rub Luke's head for me. Uh, give Christian a hug. Um, give Rich a hug too. Give Mike a hug. I would, I, I kind of would, like if I was writing a letter to somebody, especially to a church, I, I think I'd end it a little differently. So what this says to us is, is this is, this is the last word you have to leave to a church. It's pretty important what James is saying. Essentially what he's saying is he's saying, this is the thing, this is what I want to leave you with. And he starts it off with my brothers. He's writing to them as a church. And it's just such a short ending. It's, it's so strange to me. And um, essentially he leaves us with, with the last word. He leaves the church with the last word. And he basically tells us he wants us to restore those people to the truth. Restore people to the truth who have fallen away. People who have given up on the gospel, have turned their backs to it, turned their back on the truth, it says. Wandered from the truth. So he tells us we, we're to turn those people back. And we're to do everything we can to bring them back. That's our calling to, one of our callings as a church is to bring people back into the fold. That's not going to happen in an atheist church. There's nothing to bring people back to. You just show up and that, that's it. So the purpose is, the purpose that we want to, what I want you to see today is we want to be a church that's willing to be in one another's, one another's lives enough to where if a person around us that we love is in sin, that we can restore them back to community with us, back to the truth, back to the gospel. That's ultimately what we want us to see today. When we fall, we have brothers there to pick us up, brothers and sisters there to encourage us to pick us up. And then once, we, once we, we, we're doing this on the side while we're also fulfilling the Great Commission, making disciples, this is part of making disciples. This is turning people back to the gospel that are falling away. This is fulfilling the Great Commission. It's making disciples of people. So just real quick, with, with just that in mind, I want to see four things from the text this morning. There's four things I see, and just go over those with you guys. There's an action. There's an action here. So basically, it's we'll wander if we neglect the truth. We're going to go into that a little bit more here in a minute. But we, there will be times in your Christian life where you will wander from the truth. How you respond to it is determined by your level of maturity, spiritual maturity. The second thing I want us to see is we've got a responsibility. We have a responsibility to bring people back from wandering away from the truth. We want to bring them back into fellowship, bring them back to the truth. So it's not just, it's no love for me to sit there watching my brother fall and struggle and me just sit over here and, and just say, I'll pray for you. It's actually being, enough, being a part of their lives to where we can actually speak into their lives when this is happening. The third thing I want us to see is there's an approach on how we do it. We do this in love. This is, not, this is not us condemning these people. We do this in love. The goal of this is the restoration of the person. Not condemnation, but restoration is the ultimate goal. And, and the last thing is the text just gives it to us. The goal is to save their souls from death. I'm going to just explain that at the very end, what it means to do that. So the first part we see is the action. Um, if you look in the text in verse 19... It says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. So what do you think it means to wander from the truth? The word wander that's used just basically means you turn your back. You're, you're turning your back to essentially what you know. In this case, you're turning your back to the truth. 
So not only are you, with your mind, intellectually, not only are you intellectually turning your back, but what James is concerned with here is you're not living it out in your life either. They, they're hand in hand. The Bible doesn't separate the two. If you, if you deny intellectually, you will deny with your lifestyle. So essentially it just means to reject the will of God, reject what God tells us to do. Basically it's to get our own way in everything that we want, and it's just selfishness. So turning back from God is when God commands us to do something and we say, nope, I'm okay with that. That's pretty much what it means to wander. We just, But in this sense, it, it, it's, it's something pretty serious because, I mean, they have to be restored back to fellowship. They have to be restored back to the community. So what's the truth they're wandering from? You hear the word truth, and we're in the Western world, so we always think of truth as, as an intellectual idea, something that we, we believe. I believe the gospel. Well, James would say, well, if you believe the gospel, live it out. It's, it's easily tra- it could be easily translated word of truth. Uh, I'm sorry, um, way of truth. So there's a, there's a way in which you walk in this truth that's consistent with believing that truth. See, James, we've got to remember, is writing to Jews. And how does James present this truth to them? James basically says um, that the truth is something you do as well as believe. If you believe the truth, you'll, you'll live it out. Um, we see that in Galatians 5, 7. He said, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were running well. What's hindered you from, what has hindered you from obeying it? You were running the truth. You were, you were living out the truth. And then John writes in 1 John 6, he says, if we, if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. So it's another, it's another verb there. We're walking in darkness. We're, we're pursuing it. So we're not walking in step with what we believe. And he says, if we do that, we lie and we do not practice the truth. So to practice the truth, you have to walk in the truth. And then James says earlier in verse 3-2, and I don't, I don't have that one. He says earlier in verse 3-2, he says, we all stumble in many ways. And what's interesting about that, just in light of this verse, is it's, it's really easy. It's, it's a whole lot easier to, to go off course in a Christian life than we want to probably admit. Um, a lot of people, we, I mean, we live, in, we live in Knoxville. I read a... Um, I read a report by Barna. Uh, he's a basically, he just does some statistics with some uh, kind of, I'm trying to think of a good way to explain it. He basically does statistics on um, religious statistics, like what percentage of people in the city go to church. And Knoxville was based the number one most Bible-believing city in America, just by the different criteria he had set up. Yet so few people actually attend church. I mean, you're going to get two out of every three people who said they have had some kind of experience, some kind of walking an aisle where they have experienced God, but then their lifestyle completely contradicts everything from that point on. What do you say to that person? What probably happened is their church did not follow up with them. They were not careful, and they, they fell off the wayside. They fell off. They fell from the truth that they were, they were proclaiming. That's why it's so important to not only preach the gospel, apply it to ourselves. There's a way you preach the, preach the gospel to yourself. Essentially, it's just so much of the Christian life is just learning the word and being around other believers. It sounds, it sounds easy sometimes, but then it's really difficult to follow through on. 
so much of the Christian life is, so much of the New Testament is just geared towards keeping us believing. There's warnings in Hebrews. There's warnings everywhere not to fall away, not to, essentially not to um, abandon your brothers, abandon the word. So the question is, with, if, if we're saying we have this truth, we're not proclaiming it, why, why are we wondering? What is it about, why is it that we're wondering? Why are we going away from something? If Jesus is truly the treasure in the field, like it says in the Gospels, that we go and sell everything we have for. And we're, gonna, we're basically going to take lesser treasures that aren't going to fill us, but yet we're, we're doing that. We, we continue to do it, and the church is continually restoring, should be continually restoring people back to fellowship so why do we wander? As I was thinking about that, I started thinking, well, there's other places we're getting our needs met. We're getting our needs met other places. Essentially what we do is we replace, we take a, a one-day emotion fest at an altar, and we take that and we try to make some substance out of it. And when we were at, probably actually ever converted, and we try to live with that, and we can't do it. The atheistic church, I think, gives us a little clue. I mean, they were looking for it in community and music. Community and music are great. They're essential. And the community around the truth is an utter essential component of Christianity. But if you just have community for the sake of community, it's not going to go very far. It's not going to get your needs met very, very well. I, I've, I've got friend. Uh, there's a friend of mine in uh, Richmond, um, Virginia now. And we have nothing in common. He's really musical. I, I don't even know, hardly know what a note is. And like he, like we, we have so little in common, but I can call the guy up and talk to him for an hour and a half. We have Jesus in common. That's what we've got in common. Like it's, I always, I told him, I tell him all the time, it's really strange that we're even friends because there's literally, he's not the type of guy you just walk up off the street and go, hey, let's have a friendship. Because he's one of those guys after like 15 minutes, I'm like, I don't know, I can't do that. But we have Jesus in common. We, we, can, we can actually have a friendship and encourage one another. Here's the one that's going to step on some toes. How about girlfriends, boyfriends? I can't count on three hands the number of people I have seen leave the church because they're getting their needs met from a girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse over Jesus. There's people among us right now that, that will do that if we don't watch ourselves. Girlfriends and boyfriends are not more important than Jesus. They're not. They'll give you temporary joy. The love wears off after a while. Love is not a feeling, it's a commitment. Sports, hobbies. Um, I heard a pastor in uh, Dallas say that the, the biggest, uh, I'm probably going to miss, I'm going to get the general idea, I can't quote it word for word. Basically the biggest, the biggest shrine in, in Dallas is the Cowboy Stadium. Would it be Neyland in Knoxville? Would that be what it is? Man, I get on those message boards, and I'm looking up the recruiting and stuff. And, I mean, there are guys. They have posted 450 posts in, like, the last month on just recruiting for football. And I'm like, is this what your, your life amounts to? Is every spare second you're looking at football? I mean, I love football. Don't get me wrong. I played, look at me. I played football. But is that, like, the ultimate end goal of your life is, is football? It's, it, these things aren't bad in and of themselves. It's just when they're put above Christ and the church. Like I said earlier, if Jesus, if Jesus is truly the treasure in the field, this should make us sell off all we own. 
but we're so content with lesser treasures that, satisfy, that, that pretend to satisfy us for a short period of time. We're thrown off course by something that tries to compete with God but can't truly do what God could do for us. So, so that truth that we're wandering from, how, how can you tell if you're wandering from it? I mean, there have been times that you can say, and I can say this, there have been spots where, where Lindsay, because Lindsay's in my life every day, where she can look at me and she can go, you're not believing the gospel in this area. Here's where, you're, here's where you're falling. Do you have people in your life that can do that? So how do you know? Um, this, this isn't 100%, but almost, in just my experience and being a, a Christian, the first thing to go out the door is... is community typically the person will show up part of the time they'll um they'll they'll come and they'll just they'll they'll come through the doors they'll be they'll be great but then their life falls apart the rest of the week and essentially what we want to do is we want to we want to hide our sin from one another because we're ashamed of it we're ashamed of of telling your brother that we're struggling or sister that we're struggling with something and, and sin by its very nature is isolation. It's just, it's the, the, I've told Lindsay, typically if I'm just in isolation for a couple of days, it tends to be very depressing, very, I, I can start running ideas through my head real fast that, oh, the world hates me and people hate me. And sin by its very nature is isolation. It makes you think you're all alone and condemned when you're actually approved and accepted in Christ. So all that to say this, so, we're, so so far James has said we're wandering from this truth. There's a truth that we're restoring people from that they've wandered from. So just an, a concept I want to go over with you guys, and you guys may have heard of it. It's the concept of church membership. How many of you guys, you can raise your hands. How many of you guys ever heard of church membership? Okay, a pretty decent amount of us. This is not something we do just so we can get people to tithe. This is not just something we do so that we can, do you remember the little board that you'd have? Did you ever see the little boards that would have like the, the tithe for the day and the people that attended? It's not just to do that either. Although I like the, I always liked those. I thought they were neat. But, but the key word here, um, if you'll go back to James for me, the key word is among you. Being a member of a church is assumed all throughout the New Testament. You can't read the New Testament without assuming that believers have some sort of um, accountability for one another. They have some sort of um, relationship with one another. And the key words there, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings them back. James assumes that believers are banded together around the truth, around the gospel. You can't bring somebody back to something they didn't belong to. And if you've ever seen the expression in the New Testament of a pastor shepherding a sheep, imagine how silly that pastor would look. Okay, you're driving in New Zealand and you look over and there's a, there's a guy in full... I think of the middle, I've got the Middle Eastern garb going on, and you got the hat, and there's no sheep behind him. What would you do? You'd be like, that guy's crazy. There's no sheep behind the guy. We're called to obey and submit to leaders in the Bible. How are we to submit to people if we don't know who our leaders are? How are we to make disciples without a local church? What are you calling people to? What are you, who, how do you disciple someone if they're not committed somewhere? And it's really got... It's really got harder in, in our age because we can drive, well, that church has made me mad. Let's drive across to this church or let's go to this church or this church or this church. I don't like what this one said. Let's go here. It's really easy to do that. 
It's not going to be healthy in the long run for you, but it's really, really easy to do that this day and age because you've got all these churches vying for your attentions. And with this text, you wouldn't have anything to call people back to. If they've wandered from the truth, and if the truth is walking in something, not just a belief, how do you call them back to something like that? You can't. You can't without, without a membership, without a local body that you're, you're basically in one another's lives. It's, it's impossible. And another thing I, I just want to see from this is um, God uses means to, to do this. God could totally, if he wanted to, just, just call down like he did with Paul and just call down and go, all right, you're Christians, let's go. He uses means. He uses the word. He uses the word to save people. He uses people in each other's lives. He uses friendships to save people, to build a, to be, essentially to build a platform where we can share the gospel with people. Um, there's a really, one of my favorite, one of my favorite hymns is um, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. I love that hymn. And the story, it's really interesting that the guy that, um, the guy that wrote the hymn, his name is Robert Robinson. He, um, he basically, he spent a long time running from God. A lot, I think it was about three to four years. He just spent running from God. And it says, hoping to, uh, the story goes, hoping to relieve his mind, he decided to travel. He ran to a young woman and they began to talk about a hymn that she had just read. It turned out that the hymn was, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. He tried to avoid her question about the hymn, but she continued to ask him for a response. Suddenly he began to cry. He said, I wrote that hymn many years ago. I'd give anything to experience that joy again. She told him that streams of mercy still flowed. He was soon restored to fellowship with his church. This is a random person he meets on a road, and God used that to bring him back into community with his church, back into the truth. How much more would God use people that you already have friendships and relationships with to bring them back to something like that? So just very quick, just for that, that, that first part, it, it's, it's easy to wander, and we have to be on guard against it as a church because we... Our task is to make disciples. This is part of the disciple-making process. It's bringing people back to the truth. So we've got a responsibility to this. We're, we are the means that God, use, God uses for this. And, and the word just bring back, it's just another way of saying repent. It's another way of saying, I mean, it's used for salvation all the time in the New Testament. It's just another word for saying you repent, you turn around from what you believed. And you believe this, you believe the truth. And so, we ultimately, the goal is to bring them back into community with us. Another question, church discipline. You ever heard the term church discipline? You probably heard many negative, horrible, terrible things about it. Um, church discipline is essentially an essential part of being a Christian. It's an essential part when someone just will not repent of, of a public sin that they are in um, that, that's just, that could potentially destroy the church. Um, turn with me to Matthew 18. And keep in mind that the whole goal of this is restoration. This is, this is not hatred. This is not wanting to put, this is not wanting to, to uh, criticize people. The goal is to bring them back to the truth because the truth is so much better. 
Matthew writes, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the goal is to gain your brother. And hopefully this is the first step. The first step is go to your brother, say what's happened. Let's go on from there. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. So putting the person out is the last process. That's typically the process we hear of. And um, that's usually the process that we hear uh, of if there's something really bad going on in the church that we have to do. We have to do this because it it will spread like gangrene all over the church. Um, How about 1 Corinthians? Let's do 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul's talking to the Corinthian church. And there's a man who's having a sexual relationship inside the church that he should not be having. And Paul says to him, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Another way of saying that is that you put a rotten apple in a barrel of apples, the apples are all going to get rotten. One rotten apple spoils the whole bunch. I've seen this happen. My, my first, uh, the, the church that I, I first uh, heard the gospel in and, and the church I was first a member of, um, our pastor chose not to say anything about a divorce that was happening. And when I say divorce, I mean, it was, it was a, the one I recall was a pretty, pretty messy one. He chose not to say anything. Well, over the course of the next two years, there were about, four, I believe it's 14 or 16. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Once people figured out that this church didn't love them enough to say anything, didn't care about the marriage enough to, to say anything because we're Americans, we're individuals, 14. Because people realized they could get away with it. People realized they, there, was no, there was no community involved where you have another married couple that could speak into your life if you're struggling with something. There was none of that. It was show up on Sunday mornings and that's it. And that's why Paul said it's so important. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So it, it's primarily concerned, when we talk about this, it's primarily concerned we want to restore the person, just like James is wanting to do here. We want to restore that person back to the truth. We want to keep this from spreading to others because it will happen, and, and it can take down several people if it happens, if there's no repentance involved. And... and we're also concerned with the purity of the church. How many times have you heard a person say, I don't want to go to church because such and such does this? Now, there's obviously, obviously you could take it too far and say there's, there's thousands of reasons unbelievers choose not to go to church. Thousands. But I, I couldn't count on 15 hands how many times I've heard something that basically they, they think, especially a guy at my job right now, he just thinks Christianity doesn't make a difference in your life whatsoever because every Christian he has ever met is just like every non-Christian he has ever met. He doesn't think there's a difference ethically between the two. And he's, sometimes he's right. We're concerned with the purity of the church. We want the church to be, to be pure like the head of the church, Christ. We, we, we reflect the head, the head of the body. We've all heard these critiques, and they come from a lot of corners. And, and that's what this is primarily concerned about. And there's going to be a day where we're presented as, the, we're presented as a bride. I mean, we're going to be pure and spotless. And the Jews, um, 
the Jews are doing this. Uh, in, in Romans 2.24, it says, The name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you, because of your behavior. Because of your behavior, the Gentiles are blaspheming God. They're, they're rejecting God because of your behavior. So how do we do this? I know this is hard. I know I'm stepping on toes. But how do we do this? We do this in love. This, this is all done in love. In Galatians 6.1... There's a very interesting thing Paul says. He says, Brothers, if, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore. Very similar to James, restore. You should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So, to tell you what this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean we're policing each other. This is not, you know, uh, this is not me hiding behind a bush in my cop car trying to get you as you're going down the road. That's, that's not what this is. There's a guy, that, by the way, that sits. He sits right, there's a bush, and he sits like this cop, like just pushes his car back right, like right behind this bush, and he sits there with his gun on my way to work. And like, I think the speed limit drops from like 40 to 25 or something. And almost every third morning he has somebody. That, that's not the goal. The goal is not to be a Pharisee about this. The goal is to restore them, restore them in, in love back to the truth. This is essentially, that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees were so concerned with unessential things. They were so concerned about tedious little things that didn't matter. They weren't concerned about the soul. They weren't concerned about the, the actual belief. They were just concerned about what they were doing. And it, it's, loving to, it's, it's loving to discipline somebody if, if, there's, if they're unrepentant. I mean, there has been... Um, there's been people that have had to speak into my life about things because I'm blind to them. It, it's loving when a person is falling off the roadside if you don't try to pick him up and bring him back. It's not a loving thing to let him lay there. It's not a loving thing to not say anything. Um, Hebrews 12.6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every, every son whom he receives. We learn in hard moments. A lot of times, you, I learn more in, in hard moments in my life than the easy times. Um, a few weeks back, Lindsay and I were um, talking about a, a, basically a different way. Oh, there we go. Basically, a different way of how we were going to kind of discipline Haddon and Hudson when they when they disobeyed us. And if you're a parent with kids, you have we have all disciplined out of anger. Every one of us have. Um, and me and Lindsay kind of just took a kind of a self-assessment of ourselves, and we were realizing we're disciplining out of anger. You know, we're we're kind of like getting time out because they've you know kids just have this ability to just get you to the nth degree, and then you're sitting there and you're just like, oh. And um, what what was so what was so in, interesting about all this to me was, was Hudson has always leaned towards Lindsay, and it's always been a strange. It's always been strange to me that he's done that. He's very similar to Lindsay. They have almost identical personalities. And I started, basically, I, I just set up a structure where I was showing him I was loving him by disciplining him. I showed him that I was loving him by trying to, when he was acting out, I was trying to rail him in, but I was doing it out of love instead of anger. You know what happened? That kid is attached to my hip now. Like, he cries for me now. He never used to cry. For, I mean, he loves me, but he never used to cry. Like, he, he is attached to my hip because he knows that I have his good in mind. 
He knows that instead of being angry when, when I tell him he needs to do something, if I do it in love and I'm consistent, it, he responded. And that totally is antithetical in my head um, because, I don't know, you almost think like, you hear all these people today, just love your kids enough and they'll do this and, and, love, and just, just hug them and, and, and all this. And I'm like, well, sometimes love is discipline. Sometimes when we're going down the wrong path, to bring someone back on the right path is a loving thing to do. And when, when Hudson realized that I was looking out for him and I loved him, the kid's attached to me now. And he's like, Daddy, 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 Daddy. And he's like right here to me, so he's grabbing my leg and holding on. So that's fun. But we, we, tend, we tend to not respond when we get anger out of others. So there's a way to respond to all this. The way is love. You love that person. You, you, the goal is not to essentially condemn them it's to bring them back and that's really just the last thing it's, it's to, to bring the people back to the church it's to bring people back to the truth james says in verse 20 whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins that's a really strange statement what does it mean to save someone's soul from death Essentially, to save someone's soul from death, James is using that spiritually because if that person is left, to their, left, to, uh, left alone, they're going to die. They're physically going to die, but they're, they're spiritually dead too because they've turned their back. They left us because they weren't of us. They turned their back. Life is found in Christ, walking in Christ. Nowhere else. That's, the, that's just the truth claim the Bible lays out. Nowhere else is life found. And that means to walk in Christ. It means to not wander from the truth, but follow the truth. And to cover, to cover is a really interesting word. It just means to forget. God forgets. In the Old Testament, it was used to God blots out. God covers your sins. Um, Peter says it this way. Peter uses a similar expression in 1 Peter 4.8. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Basically, what this means, multitude of sins doesn't mean the state the person's in. It just means the extent of God's forgiveness. East to west, forgets. There we go. Proverbs fourteen twelve, which is probably where James got this from. Um, it says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers over offenses. So hatred just makes the other person upset and angry. Love covers over those offenses. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. All this is done out of love. To, to summarize James, just very simply, and this is the last thing he says to this church, these group of Jews, the last thing he says to them, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is life and death. This isn't a church, isn't a social club. It's not a political movement. It's life and death, very simply. That's the terms that Jesus gave us. It's life and death. You're either in me or you're outside of me. And our goal in this, James's last goal to the church, is bring those people back in. We want them back in. This is life and death stuff. So just to, just to bring this all to a, to a conclusion here, we wander 
we will wander if we neglect the truth. It will happen. It's happened in my own life. I'm sure if you've been a Christian for longer than four months, it's happened in yours. You will wander. But you have to have safeguards in place to help keep you from, from wandering so that you can actually grow as a Christian. You have to have these safeguards in your life. That's why the New Testament is so concerned about warning us. We've got a responsibility to bring these people back. Do you love the people around you enough to say the hard word? I don't all the time. If I'm going to be completely honest, I don't to say the hard word when they're living their, their lives completely contrary to the gospel. Sometimes I don't, have, I don't have the guts to have the hard word to say that. And what's the approach? We do it out of love. If, if you do this out of love, you're doing it correctly. We, we want to bring them back in a spirit of love, not a spirit of, of condemning the person. And the goal is to save their souls from death, is to bring them back to the truth and, and bring them back into, into the truth of, of the cross. So why did I tell all of you all this? Why is this so important? Why is James finishing this up at the tail end? Because we need each other to stay on this path. We need each other. If we're going to reach out to the city, we have to constantly be on safeguards with one another for our own souls as well as we're reaching the city. It's a both and, not an either or. You can't, you can't be a Christian without one another. Christ does not call you to a churchless existence. It does not happen. Christ calls you to commune with a group of, of people that are every bit as sinful as you are. Don't have shame to admit that to people. So where, where is the gospel in all this? Where, where do we find Jesus in this text? Where do we find this at? Jesus sought us when we didn't want to be sought. Jesus came and died for us when we were still dead in our sins. We did not want to be sought. We would never have, done, we would never have thought of the cross. We would never have thought of, of Jesus taking all the sins of everyone who believes in him, all the sins of everyone. He would never have done that. We would never have done that. He did that so that we may have life because we can't stand before a holy God otherwise. He came and sought us when we didn't want to be sought. He is the truth. He's the truth James is talking about. He's the half-brother of Jesus. Of course he knows Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Of course he knows. I mean, this is the half-brother of Jesus telling this church, you're wandering from the truth. You're wandering from it. You're wandering from Christ. He's the truth, and he brought us to know the truth. He saved us from our wanderings by covering our sins. Literally, the, the cross, if, if you are a Christian, your sins are blotted out. They're gone. No more. You can live life freely in, in, in that fact. When you do have sin, you can be assured that it's atoned for and you keep moving on. You don't have to make a penance to God to, to curry favor with him. And Jesus is a shepherd that sought his sheep. He, he went for that last sheep that was behind everyone else. Every one of us. There's going to be a great multitude in heaven of people that are going to give God glory simply because God chose to do it that way. There's going to be a multitude of people in heaven that are saying, glory to God in the highest. Why? Because our salvation is not of our own. It's of God. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not our own. The church is, is the bride. We are going to do, we're going to be presented to him one day. 
I mean, this is, this is life and, and death stuff. When we talk about going out on mission in the city, it's to literally to build a platform to save souls, to see people come to a knowledge of the truth, to see people turn from their wandering and embrace the truth. The world laughs at us while we do it, but it's still true. This text speaks to to, to three different people, just in conclusion here. It tells us believers who are in the church, who are are living in the truth, it tells us that we need to, essentially, we need to have other, we need to be in other people's lives enough to where we're bringing them back when they're falling. We need to go out of our way to care for souls the way Jesus cared for souls, the way Jesus went to seek and save what was lost. We need to care about our people that much. Not only that, we need to carry. We need to care about other people that much. I heard. Um, I read an interesting article this week, just as a side note. And he, um, I told Lindsay this last night. It's just really made me think. He said um, he was talking about just Christianity and politics, and which is a, another bag for another day. And he said, um, it, it's, he said it's not so much that I'm against applying Christianity to politics. I think it should be. He said, however, what happens is when we make enemies, we make enemies out of the very people that are supposed to be our mission field. I've done it. I did it two days ago. Read about an abortion case where a guy's snipping a head off of, snipping the spine of babies after they're born from a botched abortion. I made that guy my enemy real quick. My first initial reaction was to condemn him as opposed to say, Pray for someone in his life to reach the gospel for him. That person's not outside of Christ. I think he is, but he's not. This this speaks to believers in sin. If there there's one thing, if there's one thing it